You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners, Lesseter Media. What you're going to listen to is probably the most conversational podcast that I've done. And I did it on the evening before the first day of the International Hoof Care Summit. Uh, And that's where I met up uh, with Craig Trinker. Craig has achieved so much in his career. And uh, you're going to hear a lot about that. But you're especially going to hear where he came from. And you might just be surprised in learning how surprised he was in the way that a horse was shod. Craig has his own philosophies. Uh, and we get to hear many of them, and that's the point of this podcast, is to listen to somebody's ideas. And we hear about how he, he got into competitions, and how he got into farrier politics, and an awful lot more. Just enjoy the podcast. I'm at the International Hoof Care Summit here in Cincinnati in the USA and I have the great pleasure of speaking to Craig Trinker. Uh, Craig of course is founder of the WCB, that's the World Championship uh, Blacksmithing. He's a past president of the American Farriers Association and he's a member of the International Horseshoeing Hall of Fame. Well Craig, thank you first of all for agreeing well, to thanks for podcast. having me. We'll go straight into the obvious first question. How did you get into farriery in the first place? I, I think I got into it out of ignorance. Like, I thought it was going to be simple. It was just going to be a menial type of job that didn't, inc- you know, sort of like Popeye. You put four shoes on a horse, you turn it upside down, and, and what's there to know? And so, but horseshoeing, when, for, from a young man's perspective, is it's like Animal Planet and West Coast Chopper all rolled up into one. You actually have horses, and then you have the mechanics and all the tools and all the shiny bits, and it's like, it's the perfect concoction. It's like young girls play with horses, young boys play with trucks and toys and stuff, and it just seemed like it was, I got a horse, and the horseshoer, when he came out, he told me the three lies that all horseshoers tell you, which is how many horses he shot in a day, how much he charged, and how good a gas mileage his truck got, you know, and and then you're hooked. You're like, well, I'll never see another. So that horse. impressed you? Oh yeah, it was like it was like, man, if I could just shoe half as many as this guy does, I could. I, I'll never see another poor day in my life. You know what I mean? And so, I went to shoeing school and just really never looked back. I was. It's always been just a big picture. I've never really looked back and thought, man, if I'd known it was going to be this hard or that, it's just always been an uphill. And so, just tell me, which part of the states do you come from? I'm from northern part of the states in Minnesota, but my parents transplanted down to New Mexico. And so, most my, almost all my impressionable years was in New Mexico, which is the southern part. We're in between Arizona and Texas, but what makes us a lot different is we average probably five to 8,000 feet in elevation. So, it's, it's sort of like when people think, of like Argentina. High desert. Yeah, yeah, high dry desert. I've been to Sandia Heights or Sandia yeah. Peak. Yep, 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 yep. Albuquerque. Yep. 
and, it, and of course we're all impressed now by Breaking Bad and we <laughs> yeah. know that's what Albuquerque's like well I, I shoot for an emergency room doctor and that's on the that's on the to-do list for tweakers and people want to go to Albuquerque and OD well there's all sorts of ambitions <laughs> yeah, that drive exactly. people anyway so I know Albuquerque and of course it's the uh, opposite to Minnesota especially this time of yeah, year yeah even it? the acronym NMMN <laughs> oh, okay. That's how it comes about. So, so which shoeing school did you go to? I went to Minnesota School of Horseshoeing, and that was in '83, I think. Okay. So, so you left there, and what type of horses were you then shoeing? Well, it's kind of a funny story because my horse—I'd never like—I didn't know anything about shoeing horses or nothing. So, I get a horse, and the guy comes out. And he has to four-way it. He four-ways it and throws it on the ground. And so I thought that this is how horses get shot. Oh, really? Yeah, I never... And so then when I go to shoeing school, they they line us up and they show us the horses. And they're like, okay, Craig, you take the Palomino. And I was like, well, where's the ropes? Obviously, we don't do this thing standing up. And they're like... And so that was one of those should have been, would have been kind of thought about it. But I... So... Basically, I really came in from from the from the south end of everything. I didn't know anything about anything. So then, when I went to shoeing school, I I knew even less than everybody else. I was I I knew how to ride a horse, but that was it. Yeah. And so, basically, New Mexico is ranching. It's not. There's not that much. There's not that much income. So it's just you got people who show. You've got ladies that have a, a couple horses. You've got you just little. It's not like big industry, like where you're from and where where there's yards and yards. Yeah. There's none of that. None of it's that. It's all backyard. All backyard nags. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes not having all your eggs in one basket is good. You know. You oh, without a doubt. I think it was Grant that said one time, he says, never get, you know, acquainted to more than you could afford to lose. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's it, it, it'd be nice to have like regular accounts, but... It, after you you learn how to streamline it and make people uh you know everybody's shoeing list in their clientele is different for every single person and you can kind of see where people place importance like right now mine is if they have a bathroom they're like a five-star bar you know if you (laughs) (laughs) that's that's always good (laughs) exactly (laughs) all right so we're gonna yeah we got a few things to get through but um what I wanted to ask you about was, now you had a TV experience of Forged in Fire. I've got the title right, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I have people in the UK that they just love the show. And it's, it, this has got me more kudos than putting their horse right and saying, I know a guy who did that. Well, it, it, what it was is I have a lot of friends, a lot of friends that make knives. And... When Forged and Fire came out, it was a hit, and and they were like, I was a crash test dummy. It was like they said, Craig, will you go go on the show? Because I could I could pass the psych test because they have psych tests because you're building weapons. So like if you've killed your ex-wife, they don't want you on the show, mm-hmm. and so you have to pass certain amount of psychological tests. So they I passed all the psych tests, and then I got on the show, and because the guys wanted to see if it was a fair contest. Like they want to, like, you get on the contest and they have they have four minute or five minute glue and they have twenty four hour glue and you're like, well, if the show's only three hours long, why would you have twenty four hour glue? 
Well, yeah. And stuff like and And so I'm not really a knife maker. So I went to Jim Pours and Shane Carter's and, and several people's just to learn how to do it so I could get on the show. And then once I got on the show, it was it was a lot of fun. But it, it's like, it's it's just Hollywood. You know what I mean? There's a lot of Hollywood to it. Yeah, yeah and they love the backstory, all those sh- shows, don't they? Yes. So they want you to have a real backstory. Well, and, they, and what they want you to do is they want to see... They want to see trauma. They want to see uh, strife. They want to see failure because that, see if yeah. you because co- no one really wants to see you have a real clean go. And and everybody, it doesn't matter what the test is. I mean, all those shows are the same. They all have you finished with only you know three seconds to spare. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it was fun because I went on there and and I took second to a guy named Salem Straub and he's really 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 he's a knife maker. So yeah. it was like. They put you up again, and I, I'm still friends with him on Facebook, and he makes some exceptional work. So it was, I got sad. You'd think they could edit it once in a while so I could win, but they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so it was a good experience. Oh, yeah, it was a real good experience. Well, that's, that's great. Now, um, you have two of your sons working with you, unless you've got some secret sons I don't no, know about. No, two. I've, Bodie worked with me. And he lives in Minnesota. He went back to Minnesota, and he's got a really good business there. And then my younger son, with COVID, got the the whole COVID thing. He was a he was a performance major in music, and his last year of school was all live performances. Well, obviously he couldn't do live performances for, with COVID, so they did away with his major, and then he started shoeing horses. Okay. So that's where with those two. But, but you see, because I come from a family of farriers, and, and when I, there was a point in our forge where I had three uncles, my father, my older brother, and my younger brother, all in the same forge. And there's certain tensions in families. When it works well in a business, it works really well. And when it doesn't work so well, it's bad. Well, exactly. But, but how do you overcome it? With, well, obviously... Bodie's a long way from home, so there was never you and your two sons together. No, no. And we, we just got done with a competition, which is probably the greatest thing and one of the neatest things we've ever did. We did a three-man draft together, and we ended up doing really well. But it was, it was fun. It was good. But my, my older son is exactly like my wife. He's quiet, doesn't have anything to say, really uh, an introvert. And then my youngest son is identical to me. So I have the luxury of having our, like, I'm sure in England they did that, where, where you, if you were kind of like oil and water, you, you might go and work with other people in the local area just to kind of deflect some of all the... Well, my father sent me <laughs> with another guy. Exactly. He believed those school reports. First 11 months, I was in another forge, same town. Um, and then when he finally twigged that maybe I wasn't so bad... Then he had me with him. When the skill comes back up, then yeah. then you're not so bad, are you? Yeah. So he and he sort of. Uh, it was quite a nice feeling for me because you know we're talking in the early seventies, and my father was never really big on the compliments. He was he was a great father, but he was not. But the biggest compliment was the first shoe I ever made. He put it on a horse. You know, he, he nailed it on, and uh, he never said it's a great shoe, but it was good enough for him to nail on. So. Well, you but in the in. The UK, you guys pretty much, like with you being around that many farriers and stuff, and you're like second, third generation? I'm at least fifth. 
fifth generation. Well, I daren't go back any further. Holy it's, cow. It starts to show a, a complete lack of imagination <laughs> in my family. <laughs> fifth generation, that's crazy. That's yeah. pretty cool, though, because I'll tell you what, I don't think that farriers know how to shoe a horse, but I know they damn sure know how not to shoe a horse. And when you have five generations, you damn sure know how not you're going to shoe that horse, huh? Yeah. No, it just goes back a long way. And I've got a, a nephew, so the next generation is, is that's shoeing. Cool. So that's it's nice. And I see him about once a week. And he's. Uh, Do you he's, still shoe? I retired from shoeing. 18 months ago. Hey, who's doing this interview? Hi, guys. Go, go ahead. So, <laughs> yeah, I retired about 18 months ago from shoeing. I didn't retire because I'm doing podcasts and webinars oh, yeah. and books you see and your lectures. Hands still and, in. Yeah. So, and uh, I mix in with lots of the guys that are still shoeing. All right. So you, you, you um, mentioned it before we started this, this interview that we met up in South Africa, didn't we? Yes. And uh, we were both on the same program. It was a small program. Uh, it probably was just you and me I can't quite remember but but we met up and uh, and I can remember trying to explain the delicacies if there are any of the game of rugby oh it was the best and that's where I gained all the respect for you because we were we were at kind of a banquet event there was a big game going on and they and they they started talking trash and you just started feeding it back to them and then you started telling telling me about rugby and, and all the idiosyncrasies of it and it was like but it was that's where I knew that you you, you had a little bit chat to you and you could uh, <laughs> you could tell the South, South Africans what they needed to hear yeah well you've always wherever you go you've got to give as good as you get <laughs> oh, yeah. you? yes and, you do and, and there's a certain relationship between South Africa and, and England especially over rugby so it was sort of perfect but if I remember it was South Africa and Wales playing Yes. And much as it hurts me, I was supporting Wales. Well, you'd have to. You'd have and, to. And I think, if I remember rightly, Wales gave them a good spanking. Oh, they did. They, and they did. were not happy with it. But okay. So, so you've done clinics um, around the world. So, where is the best place that you've been? I would. I would have to say that the people like. I really enjoyed going to Japan. I I liked their culture. I liked. I liked going there. They they're very tentative. Uh, part of my part of my lecture is a little bit of comedy, and you don't do comedy well in a different speaking language. So it was hard, but um, they just they just seem like they they they're organized. They had a lot of, they had a lot of structure, and I I I I like them. I like the UK. I like. I like structure and I like tradition and I mean I'm not saying that I'm not in for innovation but I think that innovation usually comes after tradition not before tradition. That's a good way of putting it. And I, I only had one experience in Japan. I went out and gave some lectures and uh, I love the food so that was good and they were impressed that I could use chopsticks but as I said to them I've used my hands all my life. and. Uh, I couldn't use chopsticks. It was a bad thing. Oh, so. and then and then it's such a, a light a light um, menu that when you come back home, my wife thought I was going to be wanting a steak and a potato and some green beans, and you couldn't even eat half of it because you've been over there eating so light for so yeah. long that it's just like the heavy food. It's not a bad it's not a bad diet at all. 
No, no, well, they live a long time. Yes, Japanese. they do. You can't tell someone from 35 to 75. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, now, you go on the uh, uh, American uh, horseshoeing team, and you captained it? You were a few times, yeah. I yeah. was on there for 12 years. 12 years. That's a, that's a long, long time. So, um, so how did that happen? Well, it's like anything. Like, uh, like what probably people in the UK don't really understand is that we're a bunch of dropouts. Like, there's really like there's shoeing schools in the United States, but uh, people are coming from a million different angles. There's no starting point for education. So in America, you could be 32, you could be 16. You, there, uh, horseshoers start from a million different approaches, but then once you get, like, if you don't pick up on the information highway, then you're just a dumbass. Like, if you're introduced to the AFA or the Summit or someplace like that, and you don't latch on, then there's really no help for you. Does, does that make sense? It's like you yeah. guys are started in the UK with academia. So, like... They, there's actually a system to show somebody how to shoe a horse. Whereas we all go out and fail for six or seven years, and then all they, they're like, there's this AFA's coming to town. And so when you go and you see it, you're like, well, this is like, if anybody's smart enough, you see excellence and you see the higher end of what people are trying to do, you're like, that's it, you know? Yeah. I mean, is that being... No, no, it, it's true. <clears throat> I mean, I sometimes, because I see things from a different viewpoint... I sometimes think uh, they're a little bit spoilt in the UK, and they don't realise it. These young guys and you know, and girls that are getting this education uh, because they think that's normal, and they they have a an entitlement, should we say, problem slightly. And if they realise that it's not like that in most of the rest of the world, so, no, it's not. So actually, you know, sometimes fighting for your opportunity to learn. It's not a bad thing because it stays with you, doesn't it? Once you've got it, you, you, oh, yeah. you keep going. And like, like the UK has these radiuses. Like you, you talk about the next village or the next town or this. Uh, Jim Keith, Jim Keith was really close to me, but he was still two hundred miles away from me. And and you know what I mean. And so it's like those interchanging of circles. They don't mishmash as much as they do in the UK, where where like. You know, a long way is a lot different perspective than a long way in America. Yeah, I don't think people realize just how overpopulated the UK is. It's about the size of Montana, and it has twice the population of California, which is your most populous state. Exactly. And so that means there's advantages and disadvantages. Yes. It means there's not much room for anybody. But it does mean if you need to go and see somebody, yes. it's difficult to drive by eight hours in any direction. And you can see that when you go over there. You could just see yeah. that overlapping. Yeah. So everybody, in, in the barrier world, everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Like, you know, exactly. they really do. Um, so, but how did you get into competitions then? How, how did that come about? Well, I went, it was, a, it, was a good, it was a good year. I went to the Albuquerque Convention and I and I signed up to Stewart, and they were out in the arena at uh, at the Albuquerque Downs, and I, I stewarded for John Marino and Grant Moon one go. I stewarded for, so I, I stewarded. And what's funny is in America they put these kids in weird positions. Like if you told on them, you'd probably wreck your career. So why you know they have me in charge of like, and like like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, what year was that? 
Man, I want to say that that was 86 or 87. I was there. I was there. It was the first AFA convention I went to. That's why well, I that's, know about Sandia Heights. Well, and that's... that. And that you was, were the kid getting in the way. Yeah. I oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On. I got my ass chewed oh, by okay. Randy Lucard, by several people. You know, it's like you just uh, the dipstick that goes and then all of a sudden you walk around with your, your jaw dropped down because you just haven't ever seen anything like that. And then you're like... Well, one day I'm going to try and do this. And, and like I say, if you're introduced to it and you turn your back on it, it's just like there's really no hope for you. Well, I, I paired with, with Dave Duckett. Did you? draft or shoe and I burned his shoe. Well, I burnt our shoe, but yeah. from my point of view, I was burning <laughs> his shoe. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you know, I still remember, he, and, and it didn't go well in the other two classes. And I said to him in the evening, I said, now, Dave, you're going to have to up your game tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But I think he came second, won two classes, and he was overall winner. Yeah. And he came from nowhere to... Well, he's and, an animal. With no help from me, I have to tell you. Well, Only he probably wanted to make it fair for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, that's, that's great. So, um, so obviously, you've had great experience of uh, competing on the team, competing yourself, and then you went on to, to uh, found... A world championship blacksmithing so how did that come about well it all kind of stemmed from the team basically we would go over to england every year to stoneley and i was just hooked i was addicted because then you'd go and you'd you know you'd never do good because we just we weren't set up to do good and then you talk to spud and darlo and Derek gardner and they're they're giving you pointers and then so next year you go back and you don't do good and then but, but the thing about it that, that we never understood in this country was is we had Grant Moon and Billy Crothers and all these guys competing, and we never saw them compete, but yet they whipped our ass every year because we all went at the same time. Like, we all backed in an arena, and we all went at the same time. So we just let Billy Crothers come and whip the ever-living shit out of us, and none of us saw how he did it because we were competing at the exact same yeah. time. And so what... So then all of a sudden you're like, you're like, well, Gary has a contest. Well, how does it work? Well, he gets six ambles, and then they do one specimen with one on the foot, and then they rotate, and so if he has six ambles, he can have 24 goes that day. Yeah. And then people are watching. Well, if you're watching, you're learning way more than if you're getting your ass whipped by Billy Crothers. He just, like Grant and Billy just come over, literally, and just could could put the boots to us and they never really had to show their hand ever because we're all competing again we're all doing it at the same time so it was like we got to make a better system and 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 it's good because the afa right now has has gone into go rounds because go rounds go rounds is where it's at it's it's you are a competitor one time and then you're a you're a spectator and a student the rest of the time okay well that sounds good i remember bob pethick saying to me though about the UK and he said you know you have your county shows and there's always a farrier competition there and he and, the, and we are talking 25 years ago but he said and every one of those county competitions is the same level as the AFA championship because it was you know, without a doubt because we as you said you know we had all these good guys and they were and I only did the competitions for three years and uh, I had to make a decision either I was going to work my guts off and you know, yes. and, and just get better. Or I had to say, I'm doing enough. And I, 
I made that choice. Sometimes I slightly regret it, but you know, there's only so much you can do in life. Yeah, well, and, and it, it's either a passion, and that's the thing that's cool about England is the county shows, is you get ring savvy too because you're competing a lot. Yeah. You know, you're going to this show and to that show every weekend, and then all of a sudden you get to be pretty ring savvy, and then all of a sudden you you can you learned how to compete. Whereas in the United States, you had the convention come once a year, yeah. so then you were so butterflied up that you're like, I better not screw up, and then you screw up, and you got to wait a whole year to, before you can screw up again. Yeah, and some of the guys in the UK would do twenty five or thirty oh, competitions, wouldn't they? Yeah, and, and you know, three or four classes at each competition. Oh yeah, and like you go to the fairies shop and the smithies, and they have the cards, the cardboard placards of winning, stapled to the side yeah. of their shops, and they like, I was like, man, they must have been competed for five hundred years as many of those cards were up there. Yeah, no, that's right. Anyway, all right, let's get away from competitions, uh, but we'll stay with the AFA, and you went on to. Uh, be president of the AFA. So how did you get into farrier politics? Because I have a big mouth, but I would say we were going the wrong direction. And you know, you know, when when you get into politics, if you think you're going in the wrong direction, and then you voice your opinion. You're like, we were going, we were going into things that we never shot a horse at our convention. We no one saw a horse get shot, and I was like, this is ridiculous. We have to. The AFA, for it to survive, we need to make it more about horses and make it more about people who have calluses on their hands, you know? And so they were like, all right, big shot, you do it. And so I was like, all right, I will. And, and I, had done the, I had done the AFA team long enough to where it was starting to become my team. And so it wasn't a good thing. So it was, it was a perfect time to get out of the team because it was like, well, Craig thinks that's his team. And I was like, no, I don't, but, but it does make sense. So then to get into the politics of it, it was, it was simple. If you don't have a, an agenda and you're actually doing it for the wholeheartedness of the group, it was very, very simple. The, the, the choices are obvious. You know what I mean? It's like the hardest thing to try and hide is an agenda. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said what you said about you had a big mouth and therefore they pointed you. I would have to say there was a similarity with me. And there's, there's this analogy you know, people can stand on the sidelines. It's easy to boo and shout at the team players. But I think anybody that feels strongly about something should get in. And none of us win all our battles, do we? That's no. the other thing you have to learn in politics. You don't get your own way all the time, but you have to say, I've lost this battle, but I'll win the next one. And you, you have to stay in the fight and, and try and move things forward well and I and I like to think that I surround myself by lifers and sickos and like you when you talk to people you could say this is their life some people it's not yeah. you know what I mean yeah. but, and and when you're around someone who it's their life you may not be coming from the same perspective but I feel I can feel that instant connection with anybody whenever they're like this guy's a horseshoe you could tell like in the back of his mind, in the side of his yeah. mind, in the front of his mind, he's a horseshoer. You know what I mean? And and when you're around someone like that, it's easy. It's it's always fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the way I feel about it. So uh, now I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. All right. So I just want quick answers, okay? Blacksmithing or horseshoeing? Horseshoeing. Cowboys or Indians? Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> knife making or shoe making 
shoemaking. There you go, easy, wasn't it? Yeah. You'd be surprised the number of the people I interview who prevaricate on every question. But well, you're not trying to good. trick me, are you? No, <laughs> no, I've never asked cowboys or Indians before. But anyway, okay. So, um, well, we just talked about the AFA, and and you know, you obviously thought about the craft, and I wonder how you see our craft progressing. You know, what what's Where's it going in the next 20 years? Do you uh, have a vision of that? Yeah, I, I definitely think that there's innovation. There, no one can deny innovation. But what I've seen lately and what I try to tell Levi, because right now he's going through it all right now, is you can't go around the suck. You have to go straight through the suck. You have to, this is a trade where to get good at pulling shoes off, you have to pull 2,000 off. You have to trim a foot, you have to trim 2,000 of them. It's not a trade that you can show something on Facebook and say, what do you think of this? And you could do it better because of the critique. The only critique you can get is like the biggest compliment your dad gave you was when he nailed the shoe, shoe on. There was lots of failed shoes before that, but the shoe that went on took a lot of time and effort to get the shoe on. Yeah. And, and today's people, they think innovation is going to make it less strenuous. But I'm around lots of women, and women start to turn manly. They get rolled shoulders, and they get big biceps, and they have to start thinking, do they want to shoe full-time? Because you don't look very feminine. They do when they come in, and then all of a sudden, because you know why? Because you do it every day, and you start to get muscles that people don't normally get muscles there. Some of us like muscly women, you know. Oh, and I'm not saying that, that I don't like I'm just saying that you can see very young, pretty women come to this grips with themselves. They're like, I got these big forearms and I'm, I'm changing. And it's like, because there's no way around the suck. You have to go straight through it. And so I think unless we, unless we have let people know, like, like as you guys in the UK know, like the way that the, the farrier training program, there's no more... There's no more mental bullying or anything like that, which is actually what made the program really great, is really, <laughs> is really probably what's threatening to wreck the program. Yeah, but you know, there's, there's, there's ways of pushing people, and there is bullying. Yeah. And, and, you, I, and usually bullies are, are negative, and, yeah. and they don't help. All much, right, so change it, like peer pressure, because I think yeah. there's good peer pressure and bad peer pressure. Yeah. I think if you hang out in a carload of five millionaires, maybe you probably become a millionaire. And if you hang out with a carload of this drug addicts... This where we've been going wrong, is it? Exactly. <laughs> you hang out with a bunch of drug addicts, then you're probably going to turn into a drug yeah. addict. Well, that's... Yeah, I, you're quite right about peer pressure. And, and that's almost getting back to your, your thing about the UK, how many, you know, good farriers. It's not... Every country in the world has good farriers. But because of this high population and closeness... You know, you're getting that. And you know, when I used to train apprentices and I had 31 apprentices and there were times when I had three or four apprentices together, it was easy because the first three had been trained properly. So each one in, that's all they knew. They thought this is what the standard that's expected. Yeah, and, not, and the best clincher shows somebody how to clinch yeah. and the best guy, like, you should see David. David knows a lot about how to trim a pretty frog. It's not always the master that is no. teaching everybody. It's, everybody picks up their own expertise, and then all of a sudden that vast apprentice is getting a little bit of yeah. a flavor of everybody. So that's a good way to make us all learn. But um, Okay, I'm going to ask you a deep philosophical question. So the question is quite a simple thing. Uh, what is the most important thing you learned in your life? 
Mm. How to take advice. People give you advice all the time. Like you get metaphors and you get advice and it's sort of like spend time with your children because they'll be gone before you know it. And most people are like, oh, that's bullshit. If you learn to take advice, because advice is free, but no one ever takes it. Well, that's a, that's a good <laughs> saying, actually, and I hadn't thought of that one, but okay. So we'll get off the serious stuff now. All right. I, I wanted to ask you, because obviously as a great uh, shoemaker, uh, and you have followers, I know, all, all over the world on YouTube, and, um, but do we really need to learn how to hand make shoes? I mean, farriers today, you can buy everything, keg shoes, you, you even buy bar shoes and heart bar yeah. shoes. Do you need to learn to make shoes? I think you need to, I, I think again, it goes right back to that, you need to go through the suck. And I think that you, you need to, you need to, yeah, I, th I think you do because I think, I think if you learn to make basic shoes, shaping shoes, and the, I, I think that, I think we're just like that, the deal where you have a generation of hard men and then you have a generation of not so hard men and then because of easiness. And I think that no matter how much you or I think that we don't need to make shoes, you still have to make shoes because you, I, 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 don't, I don't think you want to give up that. I don't think, we don't want, we were manufacturers and then you have Phoenix Horseshoe Company and this, and now we're consumers. Like the battle with the summit, the battle with the AFA, the battle is everything, is, is it's sort of like we removed the manufacturing aspect and then we turn into full consumer, then we don't own any of it because like, it's like my woes with the WCB, sponsorship. Well, big manufacturers are sponsorship and, and so if you piss them off, you don't get sponsorship. But yet it's our trade. Yeah. Well, I... I actually believe all farriers should learn to make shoes well. My argument is that even if you choose not to, once you're qualified or you're working, those skills, what about when you have to draw an extra clip, when you need an extra nail on, when you really got to adapt a shoe? All those skills are incorporated in making a shoe, and you might as well learn to make the whole thing because you're learning all those skills. Bingo. In and so that was always my argument because that even in the UK that argument comes up all the time and governments are always looking to save money and you know our, our training is half funded by the government it's not all funded they'll say it is but it's half funded so they're always asking the question why do they need to learn this well you but you you learned your trade before wasn't it 76 when they got it when they did the the, the act was uh, uh, see you'd think I'd remember uh, 75 and then it was updated in 78 because they realized some of the so but I'm saying so you were pre that I was but the first 10 years of my career I never sh saw a shoe that a keg shoe that's what I mean we we handmade all our shoes every single one and you swedged didn't and, you and you no 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 they now that's the funny thing the swedging was bullshit yep, well it was the the it, yeah it, historically it was over an awful long time ago. But no, we used concave and all the sizes yes. and, um, but you know, I was, uh, I was a plater and, but we used to make shoes uh, quarter inch by half or half by quarter as yeah. you'd, you'd put it in the States, uh, five eight by quarter and, or quarter five eight. And then I can remember when the five eight three quarter came in, uh, sorry, three quarter five sixteenth came in 
And we thought, these are really wide shoes. That's, you know, typical of a yeah. plate. We didn't make shoes any heavier than that. But I tell you what, the thing that you learn with that sort of stock is, you know, you learn control because if you don't control it the whole time, it twists. And, and I think and you have to learn to make him quick because it cools down quickly. Well, not only that, but you learned what that perfect ideal hind shape was. You learned to put that quarter on the outside yeah. of a hind shoe there because you knew you had to deal with it. Yeah. And you knew, and that was time is money and money is time is if you, if you could put the quarter where it needed to be, then holy cow, think about how much faster the day goes. But I think people... And if I say this, it's not because I'm bragging, it's because it was a fact. I would make all my shoes in two heats, have a third heat to clip, and we would cold draft the heels. And you, if you cold draft the heels, you better make a decent, forge a decent yeah. heel, because you don't want to be yeah. having and, and people don't realize that. When you were making for stock all the time, it wasn't you know two bars in the fire and working for an hour. It was six bars yeah. and you made those in half an hour and you put another six bars in it exactly anyway listen craig it's been brilliant speaking to you i want to thank you for your time and and for agreeing to this podcast and lots and lots of insights so thank you very much for being my guest well thanks for having me my pleasure i really don't think that i've ever covered uh, so many subjects in a 40-minute podcast. Uh, we may have jumped about a little bit, but I hope you enjoyed it. And as I said at the start, it was uh, as much of a conversation as I think I've done. It was a great start for me to the International Hoof Care Summit. And, of course, we ended up with a little bit extra, uh, and it was quite a discussion on shoemaking uh, I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed making it with Craig Trinker. Okay, what did I miss? I, I think you did good. I, I, I definitely think the one thing is, is that we should never be ashamed to say that people need to make know how to make shoes. It seems like we're appeasing the people who their hearts really aren't in it. And I don't think we need to appease those people. It's like, if you don't believe that you need to make shoes, that's we could just agree to disagree. But I yeah. definitely think that ownership of our trade is, it's something that is slowly getting eaten away at. And it's just, it won't be long before they're like, it's just like, I'm not anti-glue, but I can, I know how to shoe, shoe a lot of horses. And I'm not saying that I would, if I was going to glue shoes on, I would go around the country and find the best guy that learned how to glue shoes on and, and learn from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, but I, I just think that there's Well, nothing. glues are much abused, um, and sometimes it is a cover-up for Paul Schilling. Yes. And there's, I think... So we tend, to, good... we tend to not say that. That's what I'm saying is, like, yeah. we tend to not say that we should learn how to make shoes just because we're like... And it's sort of like... I think that where I see our trade going in the next 20 years is you have to say that poor workmanship is poor workmanship. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to end on that note. Cool. That extra bit. So thanks a lot. And you don't have to use that. Oh, I'll use it. <laughs>
You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.